Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me I have my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on today, Cecil? Not much, Richie. What's going on? I just got back from the PASS Summit. PASS Summit? What is, what is that? What's PASS? So PASS used to stand for the Professional Association of SQL Server, but doesn't anymore, so shh, don't tell anybody. But the PASS Summit is essentially the global SQL Server conference that they hold annually. This is my third PASS Summit and, and, uh, in Seattle, and I was lucky enough to be a speaker there and, and present to a bunch of data professionals and DBAs how to tune Entity Framework. So how did uh, your session go? What was the feedback like? I can imagine speaking at a SQL Server conference about .NET you know, ORM technology might have been a little tense. Yeah, it, it was a little tough, but I think a lot of the folks that were in my session were having these, these problems with performance on SQL Server and Entity Framework uh, to the point where a lot of them just wanted to throw it out. But the feedback that I got was that it was very helpful to see some of these these things in code and then in SQL and then in SQL Server with query plans and all this and then how we can actually change our link statements or we can change our new framework or we can change our mappings to make sure that, hey, things can be as fast as possible with as minimal effort as possible. So I just pointed out six things that they could tune right off the bat and everyone seemed to enjoy it. So I'm really looking forward to getting the evaluations back. Nice. So that should be pretty cool. Yeah. And the other things I love about the Past Summit is that it, it, it's weird. It's a weird conference because it feels more like family. They have this thing called a quote-unquote sequel family. But they, it feels more like of a code camp than it does a professional conference because these are people who are really, really passionate about data and database technology. And they're really open and friendly about sharing their knowledge with everyone else. And a lot of the speakers are community speakers as well. They're not you know, professional speakers from one organization. So it's a different feeling type of big conference, which would be 5,000 people large. But um, it has this kind of small conference feel, and it's really awesome when you when you kind of encounter something like that. Nice, 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 nice. So, who are we talk to today? So today we're speaking to a Mr. David Haney. So David is the core team engineering manager at Stack Overflow. Ooh, right. Tell me more. He practices servant leadership by solving problems and improving processes. Previously, he was the lead developer on Fanatics e-commerce platform, which hosts over 10,000 websites, including the NFL shop, the official online shop of the NFL, and mbastore.com, the official MBA store. I wonder if he could get me like a Bulls jersey, because that would be awesome. Man, do you even watch the Bulls? Uh, not this year. No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Come on, dude. It's been a week, man. Come on now. Okay. I'm going to leave that alone. David is the creator of Dash. That's D-A-C-H-E, an open source distributed caching framework. His spare time is spent brewing and drinking beer, playing video games, and watching movies at old-school, one-screen theaters with his wife. He can be found on the web at HaneyCodes.com or on Twitter at HaneyCodes. All right, let's get this party started. This episode is recording on September 29th, 2015, and now our conversation with David Haney. And now, 
away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So, so again, David, thank you again for coming on the show, man. Um, one of the things that I'd want you to tell our listeners is, you know, how did you, you know, how did you really get into this technology thing? Like, why is this exciting and why is this special to you? I think I was just sort of uh, indoctrinated, to be honest with you. You know, when I was like four years old, my dad uh, worked for an oil and gas company in Alberta, which is where I'm from, Alberta, Canada, yay Canada, America's hat, uh, which, you know, by proxy makes America Canada's pants and Florida the blurred out bit that would be appropriate. I have a photo for this, but it's a podcast. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Send it to us. We'll tweet it out. Yeah, sounds awesome. I will. Uh, America's... Uh, Canada's pants, it's good. Anyway, uh, you know, my dad worked for an oil and gas company for as long as I remember. And so growing up, there was always a computer in the house. Initially, it was this really crummy, like, Apple, I don't even remember what it was, like some kind of black and white monochrome tin can looking garbage disposal type thing with a screen that was about five inches or, you know, the size of the current telephone. And, you know, it offered two colors, black and white, and then this sort of grayscale in between. And he let me play with it when he wasn't, you know, doing his job, which was usually in the evenings when I happened to be home from school or whatever. So I just kind of grew up with it in the house and then started playing back in the day video games on it. So there was uh, something called Load Runner back yeah. on Apple way back in the day, and I played it obsessively. I have a bit of, I'm all over the map. I find that people talk about OCD like it's this common and trendy thing, but I actually have legitimate diagnosed OCD, and so I just became really obsessed with Load Runner, and I played an absolute ton of it. And then I wanted to understand why I couldn't make my own levels and like why I couldn't go further with it. So I started decompiling it and looking at the hex code. And that's when I kind of figured out whether or not I said it out loud or, or internally or whatever. That's, that's clearly, for me, when I figured out that I was really passionate about programming. And then it just sort of continued growing up, you know. Um, in school, I would take the extracurricular classes that were related to computers, or I would take the typing class. The typing class was always pretty funny to me because even to this day, I type very incorrectly. I'm like a chicken pecking keyboard person. I, you know, I use like three fingers on the left and two fingers on the right, but I can type 110 words per minute accurately. And so it used to drive my teachers absolutely insane because they would be like, use the home row. And I'd be like, why? I can do it. It's fine. And it's, you know, it never really got, they never really fixed it. They never corrected my typing, which is fine with me because it still works. But long story short, you know, grew up through it. I uh, went to high school, did some extracurricular, you know, learning there as well in terms of programming and all the while kind of starting to play with, you know, GeoCities and all those things that started to come up, had my own homepage, started doing website work way back in the day, you know, $125 website, which was pretty amazing to about a 12 year old to get paid 125 bucks. It was like two years of allowance all at once, basically, um, you know, between between that and other things, it just more and more got involved. And then I got out of high school. And I wasn't, for some reason, I wasn't totally convinced that I wanted to be a programmer. And so I was faced with the option of going to university, or as you might call it, college here, but it's sort of different up in Canada for some reason, by which I mean like Canada has colleges and universities and they aren't on the same tier. Uh, so I, I had the option of going to university or the option of like taking a year off. And I decided that being armed with a girlfriend at the time and having that sort of first relationship neediness uh, mine, not hers, to be clear, you know, where you're just totally obsessed with each other. Again, OCD. I was like, yeah, I should totally take time off. I don't need to go to school. And that was the worst damn year of my life. And I worked from 3 a.m. to, you know, noon, five days a week. And when I wasn't doing that, I was working other jobs. And about three months into that, I figured out that I wanted to go to school and not work that kind of 
work. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It just, just wasn't for me. And the kind of work I'm talking about is like warehouse work, you know, moving boxes around, forklifts, fixing machines, that sort of thing. So I went to school, did my degree, failed many courses, did very terribly, which maybe people wouldn't guess. Took me six and a half years to get a four-year degree. Failed most of my math courses at least once. My highest math grade was a C. Just wasn't, I, I'm not good at theory. And so, you know, long story short, which it it seems like you don't really need a lot of theory to be good at programming. You just need to be practical and pragmatic and you need to be able to take what's in front of you and, and make something of it. And I've always been sort of that tinkerer type where I could, you know, decompile things and stare at them and fix them and rewire things I needed to. But when I got to that class, I talked to a Lambda calculus. I had no idea what was going on. But the minute I learned Haskell, I was like, oh, I get it. And that's just sort of been the path ever since. So you mentioned that you're from Canada. What What would be interesting to talk about, I think, would be what was your transition like going from Canada to the United States? Like, were there any difficulties for you or was there anything that was any type of adjustments you needed to make to come over here? It was really difficult, to be honest with you. And it was really different. I want to I want to preface this by saying today and now it's excellent. You know, I love being here. Very happy to be in America, especially in Florida. It's nice to be near and know folks like yourselves as well as, you know, have great opportunities. And that's what makes America great is, is you can kind of make something for yourself and, and be your potential uh, if given sufficient, you know, starting opportunities. But basically, I, the big shift for me was political. I went from a very, like a place that was very culturally diverse and was very much a cultural mosaic where there was a Vietnamese area and there was, you know, a Japanese area, there was a East Indian area and all of it was not a topic. Like it was just how things were. And we would go to those areas if you wanted to have the local culture's food or rather a representation of the home food, you know, in Canada or to hang out with people. And, you know, growing up, my friend was this guy named Samir uh, that I never thought about in any way other than he's my pal. And then I moved to Florida in 2010, which to be fair, maybe isn't the best first taste of living in America because it can be kind of pretty, you know, conservative and whatnot. Um, just a complete political opposite shift. Just the first time I really saw racism, the first time I really saw a lot of, you know, what happens when you don't have a socialist healthcare system, not that we want to be a political podcast here. Um, and, and that was a really big shock for me. You know, people perceiving things like healthcare as not a basic human right, but a privilege that you have to earn was, was mind boggling and very, very frustrating for me. When I came down, the other thing was, was visas. You know, America has a very strict immigration policy, even if you're Canadian, which is basically America's buddy up north or the 50 whatever state. I don't know my geography. Um, 48th state, 52nd state. 51. 51st state. Totally. Didn't need help with that at all. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's just it's really hard to get a job and move here. At first, I was on what's called a TN visa, and I was a systems analyst, and so that's considered like a lot of business requirement translation and not a lot of coding, which wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I also took a fair pay cut to come down here, and TN is very rigid. Um, it's a visa that doesn't have immigrant intent, which means that if you lose your job, you basically leave the country within ten days' notice. And it, back then, I think it was three days' notice. And you can't change jobs on a TN technically and all this other craziness. And then eventually, long story short, I found another opportunity, which was willing to offer me an H-1B visa. And then the path from, from that to green card can be years. You know, I've got a lot of friends here. A buddy comes to mind named Fininder, who is still waiting for his green card despite having applied for it like four years ago. So that can be a really challenging thing because he's locked down to one particular job and if he leaves this company then his green card is canceled because it's through work authorization that he's entitled to it 
Um, and then I got married and got a green card through marriage, which turns out to be a lot, a lot simpler. Of course, you need to have a real marriage, which I do, as opposed to a sham marriage, because they interview you quite uh, strictly for that. So the big, the big things were political, socioeconomic changes. Uh, one really positive thing has been the weather. I went from one place that was nine months of winter to a place that's nine months of summer which has been totally awesome and really good for my skin because I just had dried skin all the time up there and down here it's humid all the time. Yeah, so so just to correct you, we have 11 and a half months of summer. Oh, perfect. <laughs> oh, but, no, but wait, but wait, you're you're in Jacksonville, right? Yeah. So yeah, so I'm sorry, that's Miami. Miami we only have 2 weeks of winter. You guys are a little bit different cuz you're southern Georgia essentially. Yeah, basically. We're like Georgia's pants or something. Georgia's our half, but <laughs> you know, it's just like you know, it starts in November. November is when it starts to get a little chilly, and then it lasts till about March or February, you know, at best, and then it's nice out again. Of course, nice is relative. Coming from minus 40 weather, anything above 45 is pretty nice to me, but people here will, you know, I laugh when I see them walking down the street in a parka, and it's like 68 outside. But. Yeah, that's me, by the way. You could <laughs> laugh all you like. That is a totally me. 68, jacket time. It's all relative, right? And, you know, relativity is a big part of how the brain works. People like patterns and they get used to things and they get comfortable. And so if you're, if you're used to only that, that's cold, especially when 80 is kind of the norm or whatever, for sure. Yeah. So I actually, I just got back from Chicago last week and I was totally wearing a jacket the entire time. And it, it was about, it was about 80, maybe a little bit less, but I was totally wore a jacket. Was it to look stylish or was it you know, no, no, it's because I was cold. I mean, <laughs> nice. that's why I wear a jacket, right? I wear a jacket because I'm cold. Nice. Yeah, it's um, it's beautiful weather. It's the the big thing's been cost of living changes. You know, uh, socialism, in my opinion, is 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 great, honestly, but it also comes with taxes, and taxes mean that you you know take home less money and you give a little more to the government. But man, does the dollar go far here for what it's worth? No state taxes either. Yeah, no state taxes. I can get a beer down the street for literally two fifty. You know, in my hand drinking it. And in Canada, finding a beer for less than six bucks was a steal. Whoa! You know, Ooh. so it just and a twelve pack up there is thirty dollars. So the twelve pack here is oh. times ten bucks. So it's you know, if you if you're into alcohol, which I happen to enjoy various libations of the alcoholic nature, then uh, but not to excess. And please, kids, don't become alcoholics. That wouldn't be a good moral of this story. Uh, <laughs> right? But Do if, not drink it. Yeah, well, drinking code, but everything in moderation. Don't don't just drink it code. Don't just drink, especially, and don't just code because that'll mess your your work life up quite a bit. But yeah, that's you know, it's it's cool. It's cool to see the differences. It took me a long time to get used to it. It's kind of a who moved the cheese thing. If you've ever read that really terrible book, you know, when you basically up and sell everything you own and move to America, you you really find yourself in the middle of something you completely don't understand and you can't relate to and you have nothing to compare it to and it's just totally new and different and, and by that nature it's very intimidating and scary and you know I'm glad I stuck it out I had a bit of a meltdown initially and then things got a lot better and today I really love living here so it's great I think for me moving to the United States one of my biggest barriers for me was probably the language barrier so we speak English or our, our version of English yeah not really but it's southern okay. drawl yeah our, our version of English and I think it really hit me one day when, you know, it's my first two weeks in the United States and, you know, I'm in the little cafeteria, whatever, on campus, going to go get some food. I'm talking to this person in front of me and they turn around and like they give me this look like, what are you saying, man? Like, what is like, what is that gibberish that's coming out of your mouth? <laughs> and in my head, I'm completely speaking like perfectly clear English. I'm like, what is wrong with this person? So I, I kind of had to learn to, to flip a switch. Like there's a switch in the back of my head that turns on and off when I'm not talking to Caribbean people. 
I've totally seen it with other Caribbean people too. If they come here to America, they have this American accent. Most of the time you can't tell, right, that they're from the Caribbean. But as soon as they talk to another Caribbean person, boom, it's like, whoa, what happened? It's crazy. Yeah, and it's, it's adaptation, right? You almost kind of kind of have to because you want to be understood, right? You want to you want to be able to have a conversation, and you want to, you know, you you'll give presentations in class and all these other things. Like you don't want people to be wondering for half of your presentation, what is this guy saying? It's strange to me how little people understand it, though. You know, I came from a country that had a lot of people speaking a lot of languages, and so somebody with a thick or thin accent was never really abnormal. You saw it day to day, and you just learned how to talk with people, understand them. And so I can't, you know, the thing I always see here is. My wife and I will meet like an Indian person that we know, for example, like a friend or, or just a friend introducing us to their girlfriend for dinner, and she won't understand a word they're saying. And they're speaking English, but they're speaking it with like a, a fairly heavy accent, and it's like I'm basically running translator for her because I hear it clearly. And that's just, I think, the shape of your upbringing, right? Like in America, if all you're surrounded with is very crisp and clear, you know, colonial English, what else, what else do you know? So you're a hiring manager at Stack Overflow, right? Yep. So we talk about the, the young generation coming on. They don't have good communication skills and, and whatnot. Are you, are you finding that's true as you interview kind of younger folks coming into Stack Overflow? Or kind of what, what are the kind of trends that you're seeing for folks trying to, you're trying to hire? That's a good question. I, you know, we're a very young company. I feel old and I'm 32. You know, I would say that the average age in our company is somewhere in the late 20s, mid to late 20s. We interview people from all over the place. We, it wasn't always that way. You know, a year ago, we interviewed a lot of straight white males between the ages of, you know, 20 and 40. And we started to work on, on the topic of diversity and, and hiring biases. And we changed the wording around in our job applications. And we started to become a lot clearer about, about issues we were having and, and ways that we were selectively kind of biasing the hiring pipeline to bring in all the same person who was not unlike ourselves. We started to change that a bit. And so we've, we've actually interviewed people from all over the place these days, not just geographically, but in terms of you know minority, visible or invisible, diverse status. Um, straight gay, wouldn't even know, not allowed to ask legally, doesn't matter to me either. We're welcoming of all of it. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't know that we see anybody who's lacking in skills all that often. Now, having said that, last I checked, we only hire 0.4% of the people that send us a resume. So your odds oh. are about one two fifty if you shoot one in, which is pretty mind blowing to me. But we're also in this sort of special state where we're kind of—I really hate the term rock stars—but we're sort of famous in the field. Every developer ever used Stack Overflow. We as developers of Stack Overflow use Stack Overflow as well. And so people are very much—not all people—but there's a large group of people that are pining to work here, and they will, you know, apply. And so we don't have to do a lot of outreach. They come to us and. You know, most of them are pretty pretty decent. Some of them are exceptional and end up getting hired. But I find that what we often see is a lot of people that are that are very ambitious. You know, we we interview people that, and, and that you would never guess if you were kind of playing the traditional hiring game. You'd look at their resume and you'd you'd chuck them out. One thing that we're we're really proud of is not being credentialist. We're not really not worried about experience and. You know, a good example of that is is somebody we hired in the last year named Roberta, who works out of Brazil. Probably the smartest developer I've ever met. Way smarter than me. Only been doing professional development for about a year. You know, prior to that was in was in post secondary education. But it, you know, there's a lot of companies that she even talked about applying to that basically either disqualified her for being a woman unless she couldn't know much, sort of formally or informally, honestly, or just didn't give her the time of day because she didn't have the minimum five years experience in whatever the latest and greatest is. But the thing is, she can learn it in two weeks when it takes me three months. 
and so it doesn't wow. matter. We see a lot of we see a lot of everything. Best way I can describe it. We see a good sampling of of what's out there in the field, but we also don't know what we don't know. So if there's a group that feels unable to apply because they feel like we're not welcoming and open, that could both be a very real problem and one we're not fully aware of yet, and that would be bad. So I can't tell you for sure if, if we get a true representation of, of the IT field, but we do see a lot of interesting people come in, You know, some with really cool pet projects and side things and, and some with lots of work experience that's very relevant to everything in between. You know, that's something that... Cecil and I have talked about quite often since we're two minority guys. You know, in fact, I think the last time we recorded Cecil, we were going over a conference and we were just checking out kind of, hey, what's what's everyone from? And pretty much it was white male, white male, white male, white male. <laughs> you know, it was it was one of those. And we're like, oh, OK, well, well, that's that's interesting. We're the people that look like me. And that's as as I go to conferences all over the country and things like that. That's the one thing I, I look out for is like who are the people that look like me. They don't have the same upbringing that I have because I think I'm I'm pretty American, Caucasian American upbringing, but I still don't look Caucasian American. Right. And uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where I think diversity really breeds new ideas. It brings new thought. It brings an understanding of how each and every one of us was brought up and, and how can I say this, you know, how we, how we get out there and there's all this kind of contention amongst one another, right? Because we only see our way. We don't see everybody else's way of thought. And, and I think that's kind of one of the, the great things diversity brings is I could see it from your perspective. I may not agree with it, but I'm not going to come to fisticuffs because I understand where you come from. Exactly. And there's actually studies that have been done that effectively show that diverse teams build better products and build better things and have better perspectives and are a lot more immune to the concept of groupthink. Because people have different upbringings and different opinions and they'll come at it from different angles and that's really valuable. I mean, it's a hard problem. It's not one that I, that I pretend to be an expert on. It's certainly not one that I always get right. I don't know, you know how much people know of, of my blog. Um, but it, you know, it's sort of popular. It gets like six or seven or sometimes 10,000 readers a month, which is pretty awesome. You know, two weeks ago, we put a, a diversity page. We published a diversity page on Stack Overflow in an effort to kind of showcase that we were aware of the issues and we wanted to be better at, at diversity, basically. But we unfortunately did it in a way that made people feel really uncomfortable. And it was a little too, you know, corporate-y. It was a little too scary to talk about for a lot of people. Um, and it was just not really representative of what we truly are internally. And I don't necessarily mean that by demographic. I just mean that by attitude. It didn't have the attitude that Stack Overflow has, which tends to be this really punchy, informal, honest kind of thing that I really enjoy. It was a very, it's a very corporate page. And if you hit my blog, um, you can see it. Uh, and it just, it just totally blew up in my face, which was kind of funny. Somebody at work who felt they weren't able to bring it up to the company ended up bringing it up on their own blog in a post and I read the post and then initially I was really pissed off but then came to realize that it wasn't at all about me it was just about how they felt and their you know experiences kind of like you said their experiences growing up that that made them unique and they just felt that we were kind of doing the wrong thing with it and I came to agree with that and and we tore it down it's a really it's a really hard problem and it it can feel like it's unsolvable because it takes years and not days to, to change these things. You know, it's, it's sort of societal perceptions and history and, 
you know, the mind is really good at wanting instant gratification. So if I'm going to set out to solve diversity, how come it's not fixed a week from now? And then you eventually become sort of disheartened. It's like going to the gym and not seeing the mad gains in two weeks. You know, you get disheartened <laughs> and you quit because you're not getting that satisfaction of results. But it's something you just have to mindfully work at. It's important. Donna Choi, one of our designers that we hired a couple of months back, basically did a post on our blog on diverse, you know, why it sort of touched on the topic of diversity. It was about why Stack Overflow is a really great place for women to work. To give you an idea, I've done two posts on our blog that have been read by many people. I get four or five replies in the comments at most, and that's a month later. Her post got, Donna Choi's post got at least three or 400 comments in one day. And most of them were really negative and absolutely obscene. Some of them were just absolutely obscene and rude and insulting and even arguably threatening. And it was so insanely bad that we had to basically disable comments for the post. And that made me really sad because it's clearly indicative of, of an unwelcoming culture that we have in IT. And there's a lot of people out there, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not part of the problem and I'm not faulting anybody in particular, but there's a lot of people out there that think that diversity is done for diversity's sake. And in some companies that do it poorly, it definitely is. You know, we want to hit some quota. We want 10% Asian people. Let's hire them. And that's not what it's about. What it's about is what you talked about earlier, which is getting broad perspectives and getting the knowledge that you wouldn't get by hiring people that are just like yourself. You know, if you hire 10 clones of me, well, it's no surprise that we don't have all the answers and we all think the same way and we always group think things into, you know, bad decisions. If you hire people that have unique perspectives and have grown up in different areas of the world or even same places in the world, but just had different kinds of upbringings. Maybe they didn't have an opportunity to do a post-secondary education, but they're a freaking brilliant programmer. And trust me, I met tons of them. You know, they're going to bring a hell of a perspective to the table that you wouldn't get hiring a clone of yourself. And that's what it's about. You know, it's about business and it's about getting a better bottom line. It's about having a healthier work culture, being open and respectful of human beings and even throwing capitalism right out the window. It is just about respect and human rights. You know, everybody's the same. We're all doing this together. I, and that's just what gets me is that people seem to think it's as if we're trying, you know, we as a society are trying to check off some box of affirmative action. And that's really not what it is at all. And some of it is deeply ingrained in society. If you just talk diversity from the perspective of males and females, for example, which is a very easy, mostly binary, although there is a huge gender spectrum, of course. It's a mostly binary topic in a lot of people's minds. Uh, women, as we found out doing a little research, will pretty much never identify themselves as experts, where men will overly identify themselves as experts. There's some funny joke in here, but but it's true. And so what happens is if you write this job posting and you're like, we're looking for the best of the best. We need a rock star, ninja, astronaut, playboy, millionaire, you know, Hugh Hefner or whatever. We need everybody that's the greatest ever. And, you know, if, if you don't have all this amazing experience, don't even apply. You're going to get no women. Guaranteed, you're not going to see maybe more than one woman apply for every hundred men. And then you're going to sit there and go, oh, there must be no women in the field. You know, that's the easy answer. That answer is the I don't have to do anything about it answer. That answer is the it's society's problem, not my problem answer. But really, you helped shape the kinds of people that are applying to your job just by the rhetoric of your posting. And we ran into that as well. And then if you start to talk about minorities, you know, the whole thing starts. It's not that we want to hire a certain number of minorities. I can promise you verbatim straight face, not that you can see my face. There's no quota or checklist that I'm after in my in my company at all. I merely want to hire the best possible people for the job, whoever and wherever they might be. And that could be geographically or that could just be wherever in life they are. And the way to do that 
starts with giving everybody an opportunity. You know, there's a company in town here, there's a recruiter, and I, I kind of hate recruiters as do most programmer types, uh, but there's a recruiter in town that I really like, and his name is Tony. And the company that he partners with uh, has an interesting slogan that I received on a t-shirt recently. You know, he gave me a t-shirt to take home. And, um, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it. I just thought, cool, another shirt to wear while I'm doing things around the house so it can get dirty or whatever. Or, you know, a Saturday shirt if I don't want to leave the house. And I read the slogan. I thought it was actually pretty, pretty legit. And what it said was, ability is nothing without opportunity. In terms of company slogans, that nails it. You know, there's a group of people out there. Some are diverse, some aren't. You know, there's poor, poor white, straight white males and females out there too, guaranteed. And they're just not given an opportunity, even if they have the aptitude and ability. And if you really want to get at the problem and solve it, and this is where it kind of gets demoralizing, you have to find a way to supply an opportunity to everybody. And that's really hard to do, especially as one person who doesn't run a country. Yeah, it's, it's a very hard problem to solve. And I totally agree with you, right? Like, I think there shouldn't be any type of quota for any of it. It should just be, hey, I, I have these pool of people and I want to pick the best people to work for my company, right? I want to have the best guys around me and I want to have some of the, the best minds. Maybe not, let me not use the word best. Maybe that's not a good word for me to use. But, but I want to be around people that are, are confident and capable of doing what we need to do and having us all be successful. Yep. And, you know, that comes with perspective, right? It's, you can't be competent and capable if you all think the same way because you can't know that you have the right answer. Yeah. Not that anybody truly knows, but you got to have a good set of viewpoints and experiences. And you have to promote a culture where it's not command and control and where people feel like they're able to express themselves and talk about things that bother them. And even we're not great at that. I mean, good example, that thing last week with the diversity page, that person felt that they couldn't bring it up in the company. They went to their blog. Like, that's a total fail on our part. Total fail. And it's hard. You know, I'm not sitting here talking to you about it as if I have it solved. It's just a you know a topic that's important to me. It's you know it's it's interesting to see how it affects everybody. It's really easy to be in the situation of of success and be like, oh, those other people just aren't trying hard enough. But you can't possibly know other people's stories, and you can be damn sure they didn't get the opportunities you got a lot of the time. And that's a problem to me as well. Yeah, definitely. So I know we we went we kind of went down like this little serious tangent. In conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, but but one thing I want to make sure that we do get a chance to talk about before before we get off is I know you said that you have been brewing at home, right? Like you got a little brewing uh, brewery set up at home. Yeah, can you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I've been getting into into home brewing. I I have this terrible personality trait where I I don't know. It's like New Year's resolution itis or something. It's like oh, I'm gonna go to the gym next week and the next week shows up and I'm like, I'm still going to go to the gym next week. And I just never, <laughs> I just never do things. But once I start doing them every single time, I always think back and go, man, that was a lot easier. Than I thought it was going to be, why didn't I do this sooner? And brewing was one of them. So I had been interested. I'm, I'm a craft beer snob. I'm not even going to hide it. I think it's on my Twitter description. I just, I love craft beer. I don't understand. I mean, I understand how people can drink like Bud Light. But I don't understand that they can think it's a good beer. You know, it's not made with quality ingredients. And that's not just a, a slap at them. Like, they literally make their beer with cereal grains like corn because it's the cheapest possible ingredient and it produces the least offensive flavor. Where, you know, this craft beer movement that's, that's brewing up, what a good pun, is really about flavors and quality ingredients and giving people an experience. You know, I think of it as like fine dining versus McDonald's in a lot of ways. McDonald's is fine. Sometimes you're going to go there. Maybe it's late night and you need to get some food in your stomach because you're going to feel a hangover tomorrow or whatever. Yeah, you're going to hit McDonald's. But it, it's really nice sometimes to go out there and have a fancy dinner with somebody or even by yourself. And craft beer can be the same. 
And I spent a long time talking about how I was going to start brewing beer. And my then fiance, now wife, was like, just, just do it or shut up about it. You know, I'm tired of hearing about it. And, and rightfully so. And so I went and bought one day. I finally just something clicked and I went and bought the, you know, hundred and some odd dollar kit that you buy at, at the local brew shop that teaches you how to make a beer from scratch. So I'm, I'm definitely far from a beer aficionado. One thing I'd, I'd want you to, to tell me and even our listeners is I know there's different types of bears, right? I've, there's IPAs and there are all this other types of stuff, right? Like, could you tell us like, what's the difference between those types of bears? Yeah, there's a large number of beers, but but the most popular you're going to see are, are basically pale ales, IPAs, uh, probably stouts or porters, and maybe even lagers, but not really in Florida. Um, and the reason for that is that to brew a lager, you have to ferment it at like 40 degrees. And it's very expensive to do that at scale because you got to run a refrigerated shop where a lot of other beers can be fermented at 70, 80 degrees, which is a lot easier to achieve and, and economical for a Florida place. So if you ever wondered why in the South you never really see lagers made at breweries, that's why. A lager is like a light and crisp ale. It doesn't really have any hops in it. Very rarely does it have some kind of dry hopping to define that a bit. So hops are, are this uh, aromatic spice that you can basically, uh, it's like a, I don't even know if it's a plant or a flower. That's, that's how much I don't know about hops. Um, <laughs> I'm going to Google that. It says, hops are female flowers of the hop plant, humulus lupus. There you go. There you go. So, so what we need is is we need a picture of you and like a, a a bundle of hops just smelling them right like a beer commercial. Oh man, it's I hate hops. <laughs> just, to <be> honest, <laughs> just to be honest with you, uh, it's not that they're bad. They just give me a really bad heartburn. But so so hops are these aromatic plants that you can uh, you can apply them to your beer in, in many ways. But one of the two most popular ways is to boil the beer with the hops in it, which really releases the acidity and makes it bitter. And that's where you get your IPA. And then there's something called dry hopping, which is after you boiled the beer and you've set it up for fermenting, you can throw the hops just into the beer that's room temperature. And then they get some of the, you know, scents and some of the taste, but not really any of the bitterness because the boiling is the thing that brings out the acid and makes it bitter. So if you ever taste a beer that, you know, has this hoppy kind of IPA smell to it, but isn't bitter, they've dry hopped that beer. And that's what you see a lot of in pale ales. So the difference really between India Pale Ale and Pale Ale to me is that India Pale Ales are always going to be bitter on the IBU scale, which is international, I think it's international, bitter units or bitterness units. Um, IPA starts somewhere to me in the 40s, 50s and up, probably even just 50s and up. Uh, whereas, you know, lagers and pale ales are going to be somewhere in the 20s, 30s probably. And those are your day drinking, you know, session ales, so to speak. And then there's stouts and porters, which are interesting to me. Um, they're brewed with a darker set of malts. So... A lot of beers are brewed with, you know, American two-row barley is sort of the signature malt of the craft beer industry. But if you want to make a really dark beer, you use a lot of darker, like chocolate malt type ingredients. A lot of stouts have a very strong percentage, which is why they're called stout. And what you actually do to do that, which makes it a real pain for the home brewer, is you brew a batch at, say, 5%, and then you just boil it off. Because when you boil that beer, the water evaporates and the alcohol stays put. And so effectively, well, it's not really the alcohol that stays put, it's the sugar that stays put. So before you've introduced yeast and you've made it into a, an alcoholic beer, because the, the sugar gets eaten by the yeast to produce you know, CO2 and, and alcohol. Um, when you have this sugary beer, you can do some gravity calculations with what's called a hydrometer. And you can say, okay, it's probably going to be about a 5% beer. So if you want to make it a 10% beer, you can boil half of it away. 
and it's usually about one hour per gallon to boil it off. So if you boil half the gallons away, then you have twice the strength of beer because all that sugar stayed put. And so that's what happens with with, uh, stouts a lot is they end up being a batch that gets compressed into half in terms of water to produce twice the alcoholic content. So like a stout would be something like a Guinness or something like that, right? Yeah, Guinness doesn't really do a high alcohol stout for sure. So you can get a Guinness and I think it's like five point something or maybe six. Um, But there's also stouts at like local breweries here that are 10 or 11%. And that's almost always where they've boiled off a bunch of it to sort of concentrate the sugar so that the alcohol to water ratio is much higher. So, so do you brew different types of beers yourself or do you have like one signature recipe that you usually usually do? I just experiment with it. You know, brewing to me is a passion that lines up really well with the programmer personality, not to stereotype all programmers. But I find that a lot of programmers are very methodical and calculated and tend to like numbers and logic and equations and things that add up well. And brewing is basically just a mad science chemist lab. Like it's almost like Breaking Bad without all the cool stuff and murder. Um, you know, or hazmat suits, but man, it's, it's crazy. It's like, it's a really thorough, interesting hobby to me. And it kind of quenches, especially as I've entered management, I've been brewing more. I've been a manager since February of this year. And I was a developer all the way up to that in my career, of course. And I've really started to pick up brewing more because it quenches that need to do something logical in a way, because brewing is all about timing. Like you basically write out a timeline and what you add and exactly the amount you add and when, it you know you calculate the amount of water you're going to use down to the milliliter you calculate the hops you're going to use down to the what's called aau or alpha acid unit you calculate everything about it and then you kind of do this thing with siphons where you move all the beer around because picking up a 10 gallon pail of water is not you know it's not easy so you just move it with a siphon you just make sure it's higher than the next thing and you siphon it over and then it starts to look like the breaking bad lab where you've got all these liquids flowing through tubes you know between vats and everything else i brew Anything and everything that, that I can try and that I think I can pull off. Um, I've screwed up a ton of beers, and I don't think that there's a home brewer alive who will, who will not admit to that. It's just really hard to do right when you boil and everything up to the boil doesn't have to be sanitized. But everything that touches your beer after you cool it off from boiling has to be completely sanitized. And so, you know, brewing, as the saying goes, is 90% cleaning and 10% fun. And so I've brewed to date a couple of pale ales that are, yeah, pale ales that turned out really poorly. They were supposed to be apricot, and with one I used real apricot, and it just kind of sat. It separated like oil and water. So Ooh. as I siphoned the beer out to, to bottles, half the bottles tasted like beer, and the other half tasted like sour apricot. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was terrible. And I mean, it's hours and hours of work. It's probably to brew you know, from scratch. I, I do all grain these days, but you start with extract. Um, it's the difference between instant coffee and grinding your own beans. That you know, Both are a good product. It's just a preference, like Coke and Pepsi, which one you do. And to me, all grain is a more true beer because I was the one that created the extract. So I've been doing all grain. It's about five hours of work on one day and then two hours on another day to bottle it. So when you spend seven hours and your beer tastes like sour apricot, you get pretty mad. Mm, yeah. uh, and I've done, I did a Christmas beer that ended up being really good. It was a brown ale that had, um, what did it have? It had wood chips in it that were aged in Jim Beam eight-year bourbon. It had mm. vanilla, nutmeg, and cinnamon. And it was actual legit vanilla bean. Uh, and that turned out freaking awesome. I sent those all over the place. Not by mail, because that would be illegal. I totally manually drove them over there, dropped them off. <laughs> and didn't mail them via the USPS to anybody anywhere else. Not at all. 
Um, coincidentally, if you'd like me to quote unquote drive some beers over to you this Christmas, just let me know. <laughs> um, that one turned out good. My first beer was just the basic kit beer that everybody does that turned out okay. The big thing that people screw up is sanitizing because if you don't, you get all these terrible tastes because of bacteria and fermenting. If you don't ferment, like I was talking about how you have to ferment lagers at 40 degrees. If you ferment a beer at about 80 degrees or above, which is really easy to do in the summer and I'm sure even easier to do in Miami, Fort Lauderdale area, it's going to taste like basically vodka and rubbing alcohol. Mm. And that's that's what's called um, uh, fusel, fusel alcohols is what those are called. And they're terrible. We'd like to thank David for being a guest on the show. It was definitely a pleasure speaking with him. Remember to tell your friends about the show and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You could also follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jars. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You could subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From the Keyboard. Next on Away From the Keyboard, we'll have Michael and Slava, founders of RethinkDB. We'll see you next week. we want to thank you for listening to away from the keyboard as a reminder we will have new episodes each and every week you can interact with us on twitter at aftk podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com hasta luego I'm making this into a political podcast. <laughs> no, that's no, that's that's no, that's totally fine. I think it's Shamalama Bing Bang. Wrong. <laughs>